0: and I help run a company called IMPACT Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at IMPACT. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Alright guys, let's get to it. Just some housekeeping stuff as we usually do at the beginning of each show. First I just want to say thank you to the audience once again. We've just hit 300,000 downloads in two years. I think this is episode 115. So I suppose we've been doing it for about two years now. It's hard to believe it's only 115 episodes. And one other thing I want to say thank you to the audience for is sticking with me. I listened to some of the original episodes and I was quite nervous and the sound quality wasn't that great. So if you were with us at the beginning and you're still with us today, thank you so much, man. Just in re-listening to those episodes, I knew what I was trying to do. I sometimes I had a hard time getting there just because of the nerves. And I've fixed the sound quality, I think, for the most part. So we've got some good things going forward and we're gonna be starting a Patreon pretty soon. If you're interested in that, I'm going to have some more details going forward. And we're trying to get some Boston Confidential gear going. So if you have any ideas on gear or anything like that, if you'd like to see one thing over another, feel free to contact me on email and use this for all of our contact. It's barry at bostonconfidential.net. And that's definitely the best platform. That's barry at bostonconfidential.net. But I'm going to solidify those details and let you know where you can get some Boston confidential gear. And guys, speaking of emails, I had one email saying I was kind of trashing the city at times and all this, and I don't. And in that vein, this weekend, I had a great experience in the city. My wife and I went in the city for dinner. We were unexpectedly childless. There was a sleepover, so we hightailed it into the city and man, it is a beautiful city. I know I complain a lot, like most Bostonians do, but I do love this city, and I love its people. I love how resilient we are and how difficult it is to pull the wool over our eyes, at least the vast majority of us, and I do think that's unique to the metropolitan Boston area. We got a bit of an edge to us, and don't try to BS us. I do love this city, and let me tell you, it was a beautiful night in the city. It was a summer night. You know how it is. It was kind of twilight. And the Boston Harbor, there was a beautiful breeze coming in. And we went over to Christopher Columbus Park and had some dinner at American Joe's Bar and Grill there, if anybody's familiar with it. And we caught the end of the St. Anthony's Festival in the North End, which you know has a direct connection to... The episodes were talking about pertaining to Gennaro and Julo. And man, it was just it was such a happening city. Everybody was in a good mood. It was nice and cool. There was actually a little crispness in the air, guys, indicating that summer is over and fall is coming. That's actually one of my favorite seasons. Summer and fall are my favorite seasons here. And it is beautiful. And so if you think I trash the city, I know I do. I know I do. It's mostly crime-wise and political-wise, but I do love its people. And you cannot deny that Boston, Massachusetts is a completely gorgeous city. And I experienced that this weekend. And St. Anthony's Fair is the culmination of weekly fairs in the North End. So if you ever wanted to see the North End in all its glory, attend one of those. It's a very nice family event. You can dine anywhere in the North End. The restaurants were packed. And I was so glad to see that because of all the neighborhoods in the city of Boston, the COVID shutdowns really killed the North End. And it's coming back. It's bursting with life. No more masks. No more nonsense. So get down to the North End. Spend a couple bucks. Maybe they can rebound down there. All right, guys. We're on to part two of Genaro Angelo, whose headquarters was, in fact, in the North End at 98 Prince Street. Also, guys, I wanted to direct you to the book I've used for a lot of this research. It's called The Underboss, The Rise and Fall of a Mafia Family, and it's by Gerard O'Neill and Dick Lear, former investigative reporters of the Boston Globe. Extremely well done. But one thing I need to tell you about this book, it kind of portrays a fallen hero as the center of the story. It kind of focuses on John Morris as being the driving force behind investigating Gennaro and Julio in the mob in Boston. But as we found out later, Agent Morris, he was a supervisory agent by that time, was bought and paid for by Whitey Bulger and Stevie Flemmi. But before that, he did investigate the Italian mafia, and unfortunately... The price tag for Mr. Morris's corruption for the Winter Hill Gang appeared to be about the price of two plane tickets for him and his mistress to fly to a conference and a case of wine. I think there was some money involved to like 7500 bucks. But John Morris may have been purchased as the cheapest FBI agent there ever was. But at the beginning of the book, they go over what happened with John Morris at the point that this book was written. Nobody knew this about John Morris. It wouldn't come out till later. But there you have it. And who trained John Morris but H. Paul Rico, probably the most corrupt FBI agent in history also there was a young john conley in that office i don't know what year he got to boston agent john conley is now serving or was serving a life sentence in florida he's been released for medical reasons he's apparently dying and i don't know right so john conley was corrupt in that office h paul rico was corrupt in that office And John Morris was corrupt in that office. And I know there was 50 or 60 agents in the Boston office, but this corruption would come after. And part of that corruption, I do blame directly on the FBI because the mandate they gave these field agents, they went from being able or being told to suppress communist infiltration in the 40s, 50s in every office in Boston to going after the mob, because the mob had their tentacles in everything from construction, murder, gambling, everything. So the FBI gave their agents a mandate. Basically, it was get the Italian mafia by any means necessary. And that's how you end up with John Conley, John Morris, and H. Paul Rico. But don't forget, H. Paul Rico was corrupt long, long before The national focus on the Italian mafia. So last I left you guys, I think we left it in about the 70s. I'll take you from the 70s up until the downfall of Genaro and Julio in this episode. But one of the things I had mentioned previously, was kind of interesting. One of Jerry's arrests, right? And they all had to do with Jerry's ego and his temper. And the FBI would play on both of these going forward. So Jerry had a good relationship with Raymond Patriarca. I don't know if Raymond Patriarca fully trusted Jerry, but he was bringing in so much money. It was incredible. All that money, all that inflow of cash diffuses a lot of problems. But Jerry was so profane with people. He was so bad with people. People would oftentimes have to go to Raymond Patriarca to have a conference, basically, over what Jerry was doing to them. At every turn, Jerry would try to chisel someone. Any sign of disrespect, Jerry would lose his cool. And a couple times, Jerry almost got killed over it. He was so over the top, he would say anything to anyone, and especially after he got made the underboss of Boston, right? He was on a rampage. He did all that stuff at Jay's Lounge in the Combat Zone, slapping people around, but it got worse than that. There was an instance at a country club in Worcester where some pretty heavy hitters of the Mafia were present, and there was a card game and all this. I think that was the genesis of the meeting and all that. But Jerry felt slighted and got so profane. But these other guys... Were linchpins in the mob. In the book, it doesn't identify who these guys were, but they were so incensed. Jerry was so disrespectful to these guys, and these were made guys of at least matching stature to Jerry. And he just berated them. They left there and ended up not filing a complaint with Raymond Patriarch. And filing a complaint the mob is just a phone call, obviously, but. They complained to the Genovese family in New York, and Vito Genovese had to call Raymond Patriarca. I think at that time, Vito Genovese was the capo de tutti capi, right? He's the boss of all bosses. And so Raymond Patriarca calls Jerry into Providence and have a sit down, and the other party's there as well. And this is probably only one of the times Jerry had to eat crow. He apologized profusely to these other mafiosos. And unbeknownst to Jerry, this was a close call. They were going to kill him. The FBI also had bugged Patriarch's office at a certain point as well. And they'd later do that to Jerry, as we know. But Vito Genovese, right? The request of Vito Genovese wasn't for a sit down. It was to kill Jerry. And Raymond Patriarca mitigated that, and they had to sit down. And I believe Jerry was chastised and fined, you know what I mean? And if you want to hurt hear Jerry, hurt him in the Parker book, and he would never stopped talking about it. It was a very close call. There was another instance with somebody the authors of the book refer to only as a Brookline gambler, and he was Jewish. And Jerry got to berating this guy at a certain point, I don't know if he's trying to bring him into the fold. He was also a bookmaker, but he wasn't on the commission. But he kind of ran the layoff banks in the phone banks for the mob. He was high up there. And all this guy had to do was make another phone call. Jerry has to go back down to Providence. And again, he doesn't apologize because the guy is Jewish. But it was another problem from Raymond Patriarca concerning Jerry and Julo. And Patriarca comes back to the meeting, you know, both sides give their spiel. Patriarcha walks off and does some thinking and comes back, basically says, leave the Jew alone. This Jew was instrumental in their gaming service, and he's being harassed by this guy who's just maniacal. And I think at that point, Raymond Patriarca says, Jerry, you got to cool it. You know, people are calling for violence on these things. I just don't know what this guy was thinking. He was so hot-headed and so vulgar. There's nothing he wouldn't say. I think the only thing that was saving Jerry's life is the money he was bringing in the Providence. And, you know, they all kick it upstairs to New York as well. If he was making less money and he wasn't as successful as he was, he would have been clipped over those two things. At least the thing with the other mafioso in Worcester, Massachusetts, I think he would have went down for the dirt nap on that. They were asking for it. They were asking for Patriarca to sanction a hit on him. And the talk was Zanino can take over, and Patriarca says this guy's got a head for this stuff, and Zanino is kind of a knock-around guy. And whatever you think of Gennaro and Julio, He was a genius when it came to the gambling operation, and they just couldn't do it without him. So it was in 1972 that Jerry got into this beef with the Coast Guardsmen, and I mentioned it briefly in the first episode. But what happened was this. Jerry had like a 48-foot yacht, and he'd do boating all around Boston, and the yacht club he used, I think, was in Dorchester, Massachusetts, I think there's one in the North End. I don't know why you wouldn't use that one. But I think the one in Dorchester may be outfitted for larger boats. So he had a 48-foot boat. He had friends and family out on the boat. They're cruising around Boston Harbor. But previously, Jerry had been warned. He just goes too fast in these no-wake zones. And people think that's a small thing. But a wake can capsize a smaller boat. You're supposed to slow down. And there are speed limits in these channels, In the Inner Harbor in Boston has a notoriously low speed limit, I guess. But Jerry would just fly through these areas, creating these wakes, and boaters would complain to the custodian or whomever runs the Yacht Club, and eventually they have to report it to the Coast Guard. And on this day, I think somebody reported it, and the Coast Guardsmen watched the boat And they saw Jerry acting like an ass. Big surprise. And they attempt to stop the boat. Jerry won't stop. He eventually goes back to the Yacht Club in Dorchester, where the Coast Guardsmen, they try to go up one side and down the other. Jerry wasn't having it. He was very close to violence, kind of like what you see on TV now, how people think they can treat the police. He was in their face calling them, you know, half a cop water cop and all this. So at a certain point, there was so many people gathered around and they were on Jerry's side. And Jerry had some big tough guys with him on the boat. And the Coast guardsman had to retreat. But the Coast guardsman at that point, they contact the Registry of Motor Vehicle Police. And if you remember back in 70s, 80s, there was you know several police departments that were eventually merged into the Mass State Police. But the Registry of Motor Vehicles, believe it or not, had a Marine unit, and they got cops from that unit to back them up, and they go confront Jerry, and they search the boat. Jerry doesn't like that. He ends up slapping one of these Coast Guardsmen, and he gets arrested for it. And it was a strange scene and something that didn't need to happen. And that was the difference between Jerry Julo and Raymond Patriarca. Raymond Patriarca shunned the spotlight at all costs. And Angelo didn't. He didn't go below the radar. He didn't tone his stuff down. And he was just an ass. He was a walking ass. And I think this plants the seed for the FBI to say, we're going to go after Jerry's temper and his arrogance. And that would come next. And Special Agent Morris would come into play, right? And he had been in Boston for a few years before, and they were focused on the Italian mob, but all they were doing was taking down low-level bookies, numbers runners, and, you know, loan sharks who would use violence. So they would make those pinches, right? But they couldn't tie them to any organization, and they certainly couldn't tie it to Jerry Angulo. And Angulo, and like I'm saying, he's an ass, but simultaneously... He's also a genius. He didn't talk to anybody about business. He'd go ballistic, even in his own clubhouse, if you said something business-related in front of an unmade man. And even if they were made, he'd say, you shouldn't be talking about that because this guy has no involvement with it. He's involved in gambling. You're talking about drugs. There's no reason for that. So he kept things super compartmentalized, and the FBI knew that. They also knew that regular surveillance in the North End wouldn't work. It's just too cloistered, right? And what would that do for you anyway? You have to hear what they're saying. You could see what they're doing on some level if you could get by those old biddies in the North End, but he goes to a gambling hall. That's not a crime, right? He goes to see another criminal. That's not a crime. So the idea that sprouted from Morris and the others in the Boston office was we have to bug Prince Street, and that's where it would go from there. So the idea was to bug the Prince Street headquarters because they knew what a loudmouth Jerry was. And Ian Zanino was a quieter type, but when he felt comfortable, they knew he'd talk business as well. And that was the plan. So they had to get into 98 Prince Street and plant the bugs. But that was only part of the plan. They wanted to plant the bugs and then use RICO against everybody identified in whatever they found out. You know, that's the optimal scenario for the FBI. And the RICO statute hadn't been utilized that much. It had just passed in 1970. And it was in direct response to the burgeoning mafia, the discovery all of a sudden of the mafia by the federal government. So what RICO did, and RICO is the Corrupt Organizations Act. I don't know the exact acronym, but if you do crime in furtherance of a whole organization of business, of basically the corporation, the mafia. So if you do murder, loan sharking, some type of illegal gambling, that's all tied together with enhanced federal penalties. And it hadn't been used that much because it was super technical. And they started using it in New York, and they were going to try it here in Boston. And that was the game plan. It was to get into Prince Street, and it was to use Rico against the Angulos. They knew if they brought down the Anjulos, if they brought Jerry down specifically, his other brothers would fall, and most of the Boston Mafia would be in shambles after Jerry went away. So that was the game plan. And just at the beginning of the 70s, things were going well monetarily, but don't forget in 1967, Joe Barbosa, he was a brutal, they call him Joe the Animal Barbosa, a brutal hitman for Raymond Patriarca and he thought he was untouchable and it wasn't to be the case. He had flipped against the organization and basically made up stories and this is where the FBI goes off the rails here, it's 1967 and they put several innocent men in prison and these were guys who had directly wronged Joe Barbosa, if you remember from our episode on Joe the Animal Barbosa several weeks back. This was in regards to the Teddy Deegan murder, which was actually committed by Joe Barbosa and Vinnie the Bear Flemmy, who was Steven the Rifleman Flemmy's brother. They committed that homicide, and they concocted a phony story which the FBI knew to be ragtime and they took out Henry Tamiello of the Boston crew. He was an original gangster, I guess they call him today, in the North End. And Tamiello had rebuffed Barbosa. Barbosa was intimidating somebody at a bar that Tamiello happened to be in, and he slapped the guy. And Tamiello was a high-ranking mafia. I think he, he may have actually been the underboss at the time, before Jerry and he said to Barbosa, I don't want you to raise your hands to anybody in this club again. Barbosa took extreme offense to that. But at the time, he had to eat it. But when this thing goes down with the Teddy Deegan murder, that's why he puts Tim Yellow in the jackpot. He said Tim Yellow gave the order to whack Teddy Deegan. It wasn't true. And he also put Peter Lamoni in the jackpot, and he was... Gennaro and Julio's top bodyguard. So he was striking back at the mob, and the FBI was all for it. Those guys, Tim Yello and Lamoni, had committed other crimes. They were in the mafia, but they didn't do that murder, and the FBI knew it. And it would get worse from there. And that was H. Paul Rico days. That's what H. Paul Rico was doing, was setting up this disastrous, nasty, lie-infested case regarding Deegan but somehow just after that, he puts Jerry and Jewel in the jackpot for another murder case. But he was the star witness of that case. He said he had overheard another mafioso saying, kill this one, that Jerry was present saying, you know, kill this one guy. And that was the testimony, right? And years later, Jerry got an acquittal on this and it was only like a two hour deliberation. The foreman of that jury years later said that nobody believed Barbosa. They knew Jerry and Jullo was involved in organized crime, but Barbosa was such a liar. On the first vote within the chambers, you know, they voted not guilty because Barbosa was such a liar. And he was the only witness. There was no corroborating information. I think this was a Hail Mary by the government to knock Gennaro and Julo off the books, you know, and it would have been a life sentence and that would have been it, but they couldn't do it. And then they tried again and they had another witness. And I think this was also a murder case and he beat that. And Barbosa implicated Raymond, the man Patriarca in a murder case down in Providence. And I think Patriarca eventually beat it, but he took a guilty on it at a certain point, I think that victim's name was Marfeo, if I remember correctly, and Barbosa aligned with the FBI was just a toxic mixture, a liar and corrupt police, really, and it didn't work out. It worked out good for Jerry. Barbosa ends up getting whacked after he gets out of federal protection. He served some time in California for another murder. I can't believe that, and Barbosa was actually the first inmate in what would become the federal witness protection program. But while he's in there, he commits a homicide and goes to jail. So that all goes away. And there was said to be at the time a $300,000 price on Barbosa's head. And it's said that one of his friends who had some connections to Boston and to ratted him out. And J.R. Russo from a Revere crew, an Italian Revere crew, went out to California and shot Barbosa to death. And this was all caught on tape, audio tape, not videotape. So I think it's pretty accurate. But Jerry, like after that, after these couple of speed bumps, right, Jerry was very concerned he was going to prison over Barbosa's testimony. He was livid and they were so angry the mob was so angry at barbosa they blew up his attorney's car and actually blew his leg off and it said that stevie the rifleman Flemy planted that bomb and the attorney's name was fitzgerald and he was getting into his car which was actually barbosa's car he was lending him his cadillac as partial payment And they put a bomb under it. And that's how intent they were on hurting anybody close to Barbosa. And Barbosa knew the mob had turned on him, right? He was a hitman. Like, he has killed 50, 100 people. So one day, Barbosa and his crew are driving around Boston's combat zone. And they have an M1 rifle, a handgun, and like a hunting knife. And the Boston cops pull him over and make the pinch. And they put, I don't know, $100,000 bail on Barbosa. And Barbosa starts to think, yeah, the mob put the BPD onto me, and this is their doing. And I think that was true. What happened was his underlings got out on lower bail, and they started going around the local bookmakers, mafioso and all this to say, hey, give us some money, and Joe Barbosa will give it back to you when he gets out. We just need to get this hundred grand. I think it was about a hundred thousand. And they had come up with about 60 so far. They were really putting the arm on people. And they were saying, if Joe doesn't get out, he's going to hurt some people when he finally does. And that would put some pressure on you in those days. And some people gave money, but at a certain point, they go to Zanino's place. I think it was one of Zanino's restaurants in the North End called The Nightlight. And they tell them what's going on. We're here to get some money for Joe. And they go on with the story. Yeah, we've collected $60,000. And the mob was done with Barbosa. And they would have killed him if they could have. Instead, they kill his two henchmen that came looking for the money. And then they take that sixty grand. I think Ralphie Chong, that's his nickname, Ralphie Chong, I think is LaMantina. Ralphie Lamentina actually ended up going away for being accessory after the fact, because when the police went there there was bullet holes in the walls, there was blood on the sidewalk and all that. and they clipped those guys and they put them in a car in South Boston to make it look like they were two more victims of the Irish gang wars. but nobody really believed it, and that's when Barbosa got the message to Flip and he did. So as the 70s progressed, about 1972, Jerry was still trying to consolidate the independent bookmakers, but now he had to move on to the Winter Hill Gang, and Winter Hill appeared to be the winner of the Irish gang wars, which was a bloody, bloody affair, and we'll probably do an episode on that in the near future. So he had to try to make peace with Winter Hill. During these gang wars, I believe it was Howie Winter's crew and a crew from Charlestown or Somerville, and they were warring, and they had a beef regarding what happened at Salisbury Beach, where one gang boss insulted the wife of another gang boss, and man, they were stacking bodies over this, and I know it was primarily about control of gambling drugs and all that, but... That precipitated this gang war that would last a decade. So, Howie Winter in July 72 kind of comes under the umbrella. And the Winter Hill Gang is centered in Somerville, Massachusetts. And it was led by Howie Winter. And he was the local crime boss, you know, not to the level of Angulo because nobody could be, but he was doing well in his own right. And at certain points, they fixed horse races and all that, and they'd give the Mafia a taste. But Winter Hill knew they couldn't go to war with the North End. It was physically impossible. And they had always paid some type of tribute. So they agreed at that point. Howie Winter agreed to pay Jerry Angelo $20,000 a week to the North End, to in town, right? Imagine that, $20,000 a week. And Howie Winter also owed Jerry about 250 grand because he was a degenerate gambler himself. And Jerry put no limits on him. He wanted him to owe him money. And that's exactly what happened here. So, 20,000 a week comes in from the Irish. They're the Irish contingent of Boston organized crime. 20 grand a week, guys. My God. And so, I guess you could just pay Patriarch out of that. Supposedly, the way it works is it comes in, you take half, half goes to Providence. But don't forget, Jerry still had to pay Providence every two weeks. And he had guaranteed Raymond Patriarca 100000 a year minimum. And I think by this point, it was just going gangbusters. And it would come out later, though. And I think you'd have to suspect this. Jerry was such a wizard with numbers. He kept some of his own gambling operation off the books. So it was tens of thousands of dollars a week directly into Jerry's pockets. Did he distribute it to his brothers? I don't know. This guy was such a maniac for money. And I kind of look at Jerry and Julo's life. He didn't seem to do much with it. He had the boat. And by this point, he had left his home. He had bought a nice home when he was married in Medford, I believe it was. But when the money started rolling in, he literally bought a mansion in Nahant, which is just, I believe, north of Revere, Massachusetts. It's a small spit of land that goes out to the ocean. And Jerry bought a mansion, seaside mansion. His lawn in the backyard would go right down to the water. And it's still never enough to make this guy happy, but Was he going to Paris? Was he going on vacation to Jamaica? He seemed to like being miserable, you know, and he liked ordering people around. So I guess he didn't need any vacation from that. That was his whole life. But he wasn't a flashy guy. I guess he'd probably have a Cadillac. He's got the mansion, but he wasn't like a John Gotti. But he also wasn't a Raymond Patriarca. Raymond Patriarca, his office was like a appliance store, appliance repair store. He was very low key and Jerry wasn't. He just couldn't keep his mouth shut. So in 1972, they were getting 20 grand a month from the Irish and the Irish were kind of coalesced. They were organized. But what you'd get from that, you'd get access to Raymond Patriarca's betting lines. Your bookies would get access to layoff banks. right? If the Super Bowl spread is too high or too low and you think you're going to take a beating, you have to lay off some of that action. Otherwise, you have to eat it. And if you had to pay out so much money, it could bankrupt your organization. It would be difficult to be in the bookmaking business if you didn't have a layoff bank. And that's what the 20000 a month got them. It also got them a modicum of protection, A, from the police and B, from other Italian mafia trying to hoodwink them into paying them protection. You say, no, we pay Jerry and that's it. And if you get a problem, you go talk to Iannaro Zanino. I don't think anybody wanted to do that. And Jerry was so tight with a buck, it kind of hamstrung him a little because. He'd call the guys, like made guys who would end up going to jail for these crimes, beating up somebody who's late on their payments and loan sharking. He called these guys suckers. His brother Danny was better with them, because Danny was more of a knock-around guy. But the rank-and-file pretty much hated Jerry. Jerry was an asshole. And he'd say about these guys who went off to prison, they get paid $300 a week in cash to be in prison and to shut your mouth and to take care of your families, right? Which were often North End residents as well. So they got 300 a week when they got pinched and went to jail. And Jerry would complain, they only make $90 a week on the street when they're here. So going to jail for us is the least they can do. Can you imagine that? So this type of response generated informants. People were pissed off and it was like a morale thing. So Jerry seemed to be pissed off. These guys are in prison for three hundred a week, and he's getting twenty grand a month from the Irish alone. And you're sitting in a jail cell, and he can't pay you three hundred dollars a week. So by nineteen seventy eight, guys, the FBI comes up with the operation I had just mentioned previously, and they called it Operation Boss Star, and. By this time, Agent John Conley had been transferred to the office, and he was a South Boston native, knew the city pretty well, and at times would verbally joust with Gennaro and Julio. But there's some other FBI agents, including John Morris, John Conley, there was a Nick Gene Turco, and if that name rings a bell from our previous episodes... He was an FBI agent alleged to be involved in the Whitey Bulger corruption. I don't think he was ever charged, but I know his name was mentioned. And there was a Jack Clarity, Pete Kennedy, and there's a couple other guys. And they began trying to do surveillance in the North End and kind of found it fruitless. They, again, put up cameras and all that. It just wasn't working. Surveillance wasn't a solution for the Anjulos. They knew they had to get in to 98 Prince Street. That's the headquarters, and they nicknamed it the Doghouse. The Italians did. They knew they had to get in there, and that was the purpose of Operation Boss Star. The FBI attempted to place cameras on Prince Street. Again, I told you one of the Anjulo brothers had some Catholic schoolgirls wave to the camera they just couldn't get anywhere and they couldn't really do much in the north end in terms of surveillance despite two years. This probably took two years of them trying to put cameras outside. I don't know what that would have gotten you. Okay, so if you got the camera outside of Prince Street and you see Jerry and Julo go into ninety-eight, followed by Michael or Frankie and Julo, what does that give you? I don't get it. I don't know what they were looking for. It's not a crime to be at 98 Prince Street. It's not a crime to be in Angelo. So two years they were trying this. They put cameras in air conditioners, street lights, and all that. And the Angelo would end up just waving to them. So it was a bit silly. At a certain point, they give up on physical surveillance, and they go to the federal prosecutor's office. His name was Jeremiah O'Sullivan. And... He agreed that, yeah, you definitely need a wiretap. And they went through that process, basically a search warrant and federal permission to install a wiretap in 98 Prince Street. And they got that and they started to devise ways to get the bug into 98 Prince Street. So with all this activity in the North End, and at a certain point, an FBI car was broken into just outside of the North End and some documents were taken. It didn't directly implicate the Angelo's, but Jerry soon found out. He had told an associate, he was overheard telling an associate that the FBI was trying to put a bug into 98 Prince Street. Imagine that. And this was just a short time. And Agent Morris there was defeated. He was committed to still trying to do this, but like he was, how does Jerry know that? And that's where it was. And they were kind of dejected over that, that Jerry knew. And more steps along the way, Jerry knew and didn't do much about it. And that was a big mistake. It was suspected that somebody from the telephone company had alerted the Angulo brothers, probably for cash, right? That the FBI was trying to, do something where they didn't have to bug the club they'd bug the phones and wouldn't have to get into the club and they can do that from the telephone pole but that's when it came to light that jerry knew and they suspected somebody at the telephone company he probably got five grand for it and just told the angelo brothers so this was years in the making this is like two years in i don't know why they started with those foolish video cameras what would you get from that But i guess one of the things you'd probably get is the timing of people coming and going so if you had to break into the clubhouse you might have a better idea of who's there and who isn't but there was people living above the clubhouse as well so it's just super difficult i think so part of operation boss star was to get a bug into 98 prince street but they also thought It would be good to put a bug into Larry Zanino's place on North Margin Street, where he had a clubhouse and he hosted late-night card games and all this. This was basically Zanino's headquarters. So what would happen at 98 Prince Street, and Julo would give Zanino orders. Zanino would leave, go down to North Margin Street, you know, a block away, and give orders to his men. So that's what they wanted, that continuity of building this case against an organization. Jerry as the boss, Zanino as middle management, and then to the soldiers executing whatever policy had been agreed upon. So that would have went directly to RICO. And that was the plan. And they wanted to do this simultaneously. So they sent out a team of agents, and they monitored traffic in the area, the foot traffic, vehicular traffic, and mobster traffic. They said a lot of mobsters hung out on Salem Street, which is kind of an entrance to the north end. Those guys on Salem Street would write down license plates of cars they didn't know, and they got to know some of the Boston police, unmarked cars, FBI, and all that. So there was a network of people looking out for 98 Prince Street, so... It continued to be difficult, so they wanted to do those two bugs simultaneously, and that became the plan. I can't describe to you how difficult it was for the FBI to even get into the North End, but to surveil 98 Prince Street was difficult. They had teams of agents walking the neighborhood. They'd alter their appearance from night to night. They tried putting a van with a camera on Prince Street and Thatcher Street Facing 98 Prince Street, and the tires were slashed, and the vehicle was towed. It was dangerous. It was getting dangerous for them. And don't forget, Jerry knew this was coming. He had heard, I believe, from the phone company guy that the FBI was looking to install a bug, at least on his phones. I don't know if he thought they'd ever get into 98 Prince Street. But listen, guys, I wanted to get this done in two episodes, but we still have the planting of the bug and the trial and all that. And it's pretty interesting. So I'm going to leave you here and we're going to come back. I just don't want to shortchange you on those components of this case. It's very interesting. Jerry's an interesting character, but again, major league a-hole. So we're going to come back next week and I'll take you through all of the rest of it, the planting of the bug and then the trial. And some of the tapes, some of this stuff is hilarious. Just some of the stuff Jerry comes up with. It's kind of like an episode of The Sopranos once you hear these tapes. And I'm going to try to get those tapes from a website where you can listen to them. And next week, I'll put them in the show notes. But for the time being, the name of the book I used for this research is The Underboss, The Rise and Fall of a Mafia Family by Dick Claire. Gerard O'Neill. Very good book. Check it out if you haven't read it yet. There's another book called Underboss featuring Sammy the Bull Gravano. I've read that one as well. I know you're shocked, right? That one's pretty good. But for the Anjulos, stick with the Underboss, The Rise and Fall of a Mafia Family. I think that's all I have for you. We'll be back with the third episode in this series. Super interesting if you need to get a hold of me, guys, it is barry at bostonconfidential.net. And with that, I'll leave you there, and I'll see you on the flip side, All right.